And here we are, live once again. It's Saturday night, it's time for the Ocelli Effect. Oh boy, oh boy. Anyway, God, that intro is always so noisy in my headphones. But hey, that's the way it is. Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, I bring you an interesting special guest, a guy who I have a great deal of respect for, uh, who has done an amazing amount of work uh, as far as the alternative media is concerned, as far as any media is concerned. Uh, a gentleman who is the founder and uh, main publisher on a website called CorbettReport.com and uh, has always, uh, as far as I know, broadcast from an area that he describes always as the sunny climes of Japan. Uh, a gentleman who has done an amazing volume of work uh, that a... Uh, friend of a friend in the alternative media, James Evan Pilato, likes to refer to as the hardest working man in alternative media. So I bring you tonight, Mr. James Corbett. How you doing, James? Well, I'm doing excellent, and it's really great to be here on The Ocelli Effect. Uh, congratulations on your new program. Thanks, James. I appreciate that. I'll tell you, I, uh, I appeared as a guest on your show uh, a couple of times and um, had a had a you know really good time. Um, we were talking uh, Lee Harvey Oswald at that point. Uh, as everybody knows, JFK and JFK research has been one of my major focuses over time. Um, of course, I've branched out into a lot of other areas and um, you know been through a whole bunch of stuff. But I'll tell you, uh, I think your site started in about 2007 or somewhere in that area, right? Yes, it was uh, June 2007. June of 2007. Wow. I'll tell you, and, and and believe me when I say the volume of stuff on this guy's site, if you're not familiar with it, you need to get familiar with it. The, uh, the podcasts, the videos, the mini documentaries, the video series, uh, it's just a plethora of information and uh, really great stuff, not only on uh, historical and suppressed uh, historical information, but current events as they unfold even this week you were discussing on uh, new world next week which is the show you do with your friend from media monarchy there about uh the uh the missing plane and all of these other things which of course i'm starting to believe is nothing more than just a major weapon of mass distraction but uh either way it is quite the fascinating mystery and you guys are covering that stuff uh and you cover just about everything there is to cover um, I'll tell you, my favorite of, of uh, all of the podcasts and things, because I've carried, carried a lot of your stuff in my iPods, on my computers, and uh, so on and so forth, and uh, used a lot of your stuff to begin my uh, exploration into various topics, but also to uh, look into the more recent developments uh, of, of various things that have gone on in the world. I've got to say that uh, my favorite one was something called Patriot Mythology, which you did more than one uh, part on, which was about these uh, misnomers and uh, misunderstandings of sorts in the information stream that is alternative media. And uh, that was really a great episode where you covered uh, one of the things that I found myself harping on for many years and uh, seemed to not be able to get people to listen to, which was the idea about uh, JFK and the executive order, and exactly what the meaning of that was. That's right. Uh, I mean, this is a, an interesting thing, because I'm sure anyone who's studied JFK for any length of time has come across this argument, and I believe that this originates from uh, Crossfire, 
um, by Jim Mars. Uh, at least that's the earliest um, formulation of this that I that I've found. Um, but if, for people who don't know, basically Executive Order One 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 Zero was uh, is allegedly, according to certain theorists out there, is an order that was signed off on by JFK, a presidential executive order that supposedly was going to end the the tyranny of the Federal Reserve and start issuing uh, debt free silver backed money. Um, directly from the Treasury, or so that's what people were led to believe. But in fact, as I go through on that episode, um, with a breakdown from G. Edward Griffin, who is pretty much the authority on the Federal Reserve and wrote uh, The Creature from Jekyll Island, probably the all-time best-selling book about the Federal Reserve and what where it really came from, um, he, he goes through and breaks down how that is, in fact, not true. If you actually go in through, read through this executive order, that in fact, this is, um, what it was doing was transferring power to the Treasury Secretary to be able to eventually stop the issue of silver-backed, um, money that was taking place on a, on a regular basis at the time. So that, uh, even after JFK was assassinated, there was an, an issue of, uh, of silverback dollars, um, that, that finally, um, ended, I believe, in the mid 1960s. But, uh, but yes, this was supposedly the Federal Reserve was, was killing JFK because of this. And that's a, I mean, it's an idea that's caught on quite a bit. And I still see it popping up pretty much every time the JFK conspiracy is raised. I still see that popping up in various online fora. So I did my part to tried to draw people's attention to the fact that this was in fact a, a spurious idea and uh, I'm glad that yourself and others are still trying to get people to look at the truth about this because it's one of those myths that, that apparently just won't die yeah and spurious is an excellent uh, term <laughs> excellent description of, of what that claim is uh, not only was it something that continued on a little bit after JFK's assassination but when put into its correct context you see that based on the uh, the uh, change in the in the uh, Silver Purchase Act uh, that this in you know in its proper context really was that transfer of power. But not only that, I proved in in a video that I did because people had claimed that only JFK did this and the only other guy to do this was Abraham Lincoln. Uh, I showed people that uh, previous uh, presidential uh, decrees had come down before because this was something that was a privilege of the uh, of the executive branch to do so and that uh, these u.s notes had actually been in print at least since the 1920s as far back as i could track and that was with physically uh producing the notes and everything else and examining which treasury secretaries had actually signed off on this stuff prior to and which presidents had continued the uh the practice of doing so so sometimes when we look at these things it's uh it's definitely worth a deeper look and a, uh, a more critical evaluation of uh, some of these sort of, you know, startling statements that come out. Uh, you know, but the but the fact is also that uh, if one does look a bit deeper, you can find that that Kennedy was involved in battling the Federal Reserve. However, it wasn't through this particular device. There were things going on that still have yet to fully surface. And you can sort of find that out by uh, looking up a man named James Saxon and, uh, and, and looking at the reports that were, that came out surrounding, uh, the sort of internal, uh, infighting that Kennedy was doing with that particular agency. Anyway, uh, aside from that though, I've got to say that, uh, you have produced tons and tons of stuff. And I know you're working on a documentary, uh, about the, uh, Federal Reserve. And in general, I mean, what what would you like to uh, discuss about that tonight? 
Well, I mean, we can we can discuss any aspects of of what I'm working on that you'd like. But as you mentioned, I am working on this Federal Reserve documentary, and it's somewhat funny, I suppose, for the listeners by now, regular listeners to my report, because I have now been promising this uh, documentary for about three going on four months. And this was originally supposed to be done by the end of December. So it's definitely taking a lot longer than originally thought. But th- basically what this has become is a, a, a feature length documentary. It's not going to be a, a, a short kind of podcast like documentary that I was originally planning on. It's it's a feature length documentary that goes into the, the history of the creation of the Federal Reserve kind of the, the backstory that um, that occurred in the uh, late 18th and early 19th century to to make this possible. And then, of course, the, the panic of 1907 that really set the gears in motion um, to uh, for the founding of the Federal Reserve after the, the National Monetary Commission did its work. And uh, and I think that 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 story about the history of how the Federal Reserve came to be is extremely interesting, extremely exciting if you know. Um, what you're looking at and what the uh, what the stakes involved were and and what what ended up transpiring because of the creation of the Federal Reserve. I mean, it's actually a, a really interesting story that, of course, you never get taught in in school because uh, they've somehow managed to eliminate any any sort of uh, uh, knowledge or education about the monetary system or how money is created. These very basic questions that everyone everyone has these questions. Everyone wants to know about these things, but they've somehow elim- eliminated this from the uh, education system. So I think it's uh, it's definitely worth people's time to to take the time to find out about this history. And I I really do think it's exciting and interesting. So to the extent that I'm able to convey that in this documentary, that will be to my credit, to the extent that I'm not, it will simply just be my own failing, not uh, not the uh, the lack of interest in the in the subject itself. But uh, it's going to be divided into three parts, with the first part being that history of the creation of the Federal Reserve, the second part being how the Federal Reserve functions, how it creates money, and uh, and what the system is about. And then the third part will be um, basically solutions. If and when we are able to to get ourselves off of the Federal Reserve system, what, what can we replace it with? And of course, there are lots of competing ideas for that. And I'm not going to offer just one one idea that I think is the, the total solution. I'm going to put a lot of different ideas out there and and let uh, viewers come to their own conclusions. But, uh, but that's basically the, the structure that I'll be following. So hopefully in the next week or two that documentary is going to be available to the to the public and it'll of course like all my other work be freely available on my website at corbettreport.com right and i've got to say that you know one of the most profound uh, uh sort of illustrations of how the federal reserve functioned and i'm sure you saw it as well was uh in the zeitgeist series where they had uh, pretty much broken it down and explained you know money creation and the you know uh the extremely important idea that this is probably one of the most uh, misunderstood and yet completely uh, based on faith sort of practices and mechanisms that, uh, you know, it has a profound effect again, sorry to use that word again, but a profound effect on the lives and the overall function of the entire planet. And yet it is still completely misunderstood by uh, probably, I don't know, 90% of the population, I would say. Not only that, but I think even in the alternative media, there isn't a very good grasp of the Federal Reserve and how it actually works. I mean, I think there's some general ideas about the Federal Reserve that float around out there, but I don't think people have a really firm footing on on what it is or how it how it functions. 
And I think, uh, again, probably the most important thing that people need to understand is that the Federal Reserve isn't a bank per se. It's a system that has been instituted that is overseen by a board of governors. And then there's the Federal Open Market Committee. And then there are the, there are the reserve banks, the regional reserve banks. And, uh, and it's important to know that the real power lies in the reserve banks and who more importantly is, uh, is sitting on the boards of those reserve banks. And, uh, and specifically the Federal Reserve Bank of New York is really the, the, the crown jewel of the system so that the other parts of that system can be, um, more or less distractionary towards the real issue and where the real power lies. And again, it's not necessarily that the money comes from, from the Federal Reserve, uh, itself. It's not like banks are, are making money from the Federal Reserve directly. It's just the power that it comes with the issuance of the money and, uh, and of course the creation of money out of nothing that is the real key to the system. So hopefully I can put that in a way that people will understand, although it's exceptionally complex. So it's very difficult to break it down into very easy to, to understand parts, but hopefully I can do go some way of the way towards doing that. Well, right. And that's why I kind of gave a tip of the hat to the Zeitgeist movie, because at the very least it was a, uh, a very uh, brief and fairly accurate, uh, you know, depiction of the, system by which this stuff is created fractional reserve banking and the the methodology behind it was illustrated pretty well in that movie and uh and i thought that that was an interesting tool for being able to at least introduce to the eye you know introduce to people the idea of the amount of power that is actually invested in this system that is really not understood in general and uh in, in addition the the concept and the whole you know i i know i've heard it many many times but the Federal Reserve is not a federal agency. It's not uh, something that we ostensibly have any control over. Although, you know, as time goes on, we seem to have no control as people over any of these uh, agencies or governmental entities that are supposed to be uh, our tools and our uh, institutions. They are not ours. But even in the case of the Federal Reserve, you're dealing with something that's even less ours, even less something that belongs to the American people, per se. So the where that power resides, I think, is, again, uh, of, of great importance because the individuals uh, who are involved in that system their methodologies, their, uh, you know, motives, uh, for lack of a better word, are of the utmost importance, I think, to us as people in the end, you know, as part of the end result of what occurs based on what they do. Exactly right. And again, we don't have to go out on a limb to talk about that on um, that that fact that you just cited that the Federal Reserve is actually not really an agency of government. It defines itself as independent, whatever that means. But uh, that comes directly from Alan Greenspan, of course, the former Federal Reserve chair who was being interviewed by Jim Lehrer back in uh, 2007 um, about a book that he had just written at the time in which he said, uh, first of all, the Federal Reserve is an independent agency. And that means basically that there is no other agency of government which can overrule actions that we take. So long as that is in place and there is no evidence that the administration of the Congress or anybody else is requesting that we do things other than what we think is the appropriate thing, then what the relationships are between the Federal Reserve and the president don't frankly matter. So, um, so that's just one example of that. And, and they do define it more, more, uh, uh, verbosely on their website where they 
put a lot of um, a lot of work into trying to make it sound like it is the government, but it's not a part of the government. It's uh, it has governmental authority, but it's not under any governmental authority, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's very interesting the way they try to you know wor- worm that language so that it sounds quite quite much like it is part of the federal government, and yet it is not. And they try to have their cake and eat it too, and they've really been quite successful in that, I guess, over the past hundred years, because still a lot of people really do think of it as a governmental agency. Um, and then there are, I, I think, there's the 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 problem of the. Uh, the opposite uh, viewpoint in which people think of it as uh, so it's become common, for example, in the alternative media to say, well, it's neither federal nor is it uh, nor does it have reserve. And the, the implication is that it's really it's it's not a part of the government. It's a private bank, um, which is I mean, to a certain extent, it's true, depending how you look at it. But I think it's important to understand that, well, it really does have the imprimatur of the federal government, regardless of what whether or not it is really a part of that government. And uh, and because of that, it really it has been established by an act of Congress. It can be abolished by an act of Congress as well. And obviously that's a lot easier said than done. I mean, there, there would be a lot of, um, well, I think unbelievable political wrangling to get something like that done. But it's important to know that that, that actually is the case, that it, it has been established by government. So it can actually be dis, uh, dismantled by government as well. And I, I think we should understand that because there's sort of a general idea that this is somehow some some vague thing that exists in some netherworld that uh, that can't be affected by human beings. Um, that's not true. And again, I think the uh, the invincibility of of the Federal Reserve is part of its own mythology. And I don't think we should buy into it because it does make of the banksters that own this uh, this 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 monstrosity into more than what they really are. And uh, we have to understand that again. You know, it's just. It's just mere mortals that that we're grappling with here, and uh, and the Federal Reserve didn't always exist, and we can imagine a time in which it will not exist. And this is a very important point, uh, I think, in any of these uh, discussions about things that are, I don't know, considered somewhat alternative, but I think are, you know, more relative than the commercialized and government-controlled media. Uh, you know, sometimes when we lend power by mythology in a sense we uh we grant things a boogeyman status as opposed to actually dealing with them in a real world fashion i mean ron paul uh you know one of the guys who was famously known for attempting to get an audit of the uh, of the fed in place uh you know there there was a real purpose behind that it wasn't as though it would have been without any sort of purpose to achieve such a goal uh you know the, these kinds of things are not irrelevant because the boogeyman is too large and uh, i think that is that is definitely one of the things that we we have to as uh, as as members of the alternative media as citizen journalists we need to be very careful to make sure that although we are dealing with a nefarious uh, organization in some ways that it is not uh, supernatural and beyond the grasp of all men it may be a complex issue and something that has to be battled uh, in a particular way and by particular mechanisms uh, and it wasn't established overnight, so we cannot uh, remove it overnight. But there are ways to contend with it at the very least and to change the system uh, that is in place if we take the proper uh, road. Now, it's hard to know that proper road when there are no lights on the paths. 
But uh, that's the thing that we're trying to do here is to put out some of those lights on these darker pathways, I think, to give people an idea of what road someone may be able to travel in order to contend with these things. Don't you agree? Well, I, I think that's a good analogy. That is a good way of looking at it. And of course, this this extends past the Federal Reserve example to to lots of other things that I I cover on my show. Um, I, I think it's the same thing. Again, this is not some, you know, uh, is immortal, uh, you know, beings from another planet that are doing this. It's just human beings that are conspiring to do this. And yes, they do have an incredible amount of uh, of power and are able to pull off things like the assassination of the president in broad daylight and get away with it. And uh, uh, and uh, so, I mean, we have to be realistic about what we're facing, but at the same time, uh, it, we have to understand that these uh, these people do make mistakes, they do slip up, and they are uh, they are vulnerable in various ways. So, I think it is important to understand that. And uh, and yes, I mean, I think the the analogy of kind of blazing new paths is a good one because again. I think what that relies on is the idea that uh, we have a map of reality presented to us um, through our, for example, um, public school indoctrination, through the, uh, the the media that we consume, through the, the all of the authorities that issue de- their decrees. We've been created, we've been handed this map of reality that roughly corresponds to the uh, the path that has been well trodden by uh by many many generations now of the the established system but when uh I, and that's basically what keeps us on that path is because well we have this this uh we have this map of the terrain we understand what things look like uh when we just go along to get along and act within the the established uh colored boundaries of the system but once we step outside of those boundaries well it's a very scary world we don't know exactly where we are we don't know exactly where we're going we don't know the best way to get there we're probably going to make mistakes along the way it's not going to be easy so that's i mean that's the the fundamental psychology of why most people through most of their lives will never question this type of thing and i'm sure you've encountered that quite a bit through your own research of jfk that there are a lot of people who just don't want to look at the facts um that that probably deep down do have their own suspicions about it but in the end of the day they don't want to trouble their own uh, their own lives to to really put the uh put their their minds where their mouths are and actually start looking into this for themselves. So it is uh it's definitely an uphill battle for people who who do want to blaze that trail. But uh I think probably the most empowering thing that I can say in that regard is that it doesn't have to be that we establish some fully functioning system that will, you know, completely uh, somehow overturn or do battle with the established system as it exists. I think that it's important to understand that whether it comes to the Federal Reserve or any number of other issues, that we can start establishing alternatives that simply um, replace the the system that exists uh, gradually, piecemeal, if 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 need be, so that you don't have to stop using the Federal Reserve notes in the U.S. dollar all at once and and uh, be rid of it in some big dramatic blow. I mean, uh, there's all sorts of ways that people can get around it bit by bit by using mm-hmm. complementary currencies and the like and to, and to try to build up alternative systems. So I think there's always a, a, a more realistic way of trying to get around these things. And uh, it's again, it's not an easy path. It's not going to be a straightforward uh, line. It's not going to always be comfortable but I think that if we don't do this now, I mean, it, it's certainly not going to get any easier in the future. And in fact, with some of the, the technological um, uh, uh, advances, if you want to frame it that way, that, that we're facing in this day and age, I mean, we really are facing, I think, some of the, the 
potentially the last generations of human history, at least humankind as we've known it before, as we start figuring out how to mess with the the genome itself and and create, you know, beings that have never existed before, which sounds like science fiction fantasy until you start looking into the transhumanist agenda and things that are being worked on right now. So I think it's exceptionally important that people really do take this information to heart at this particular point in time um, before before things slip away into into something that really cannot be brought under control. And we are facing that within the next uh, few generations as people get more and more enmeshed in this matrix that's being created. So um, so again, there's a lot to say there, but I think you're right. I think they're, they're, the, the map analogy is a good one. And I think we what we need to do is to start charting that terrain for ourselves rather than waiting for some governmental authority or what have you to come and tell us, uh, you know, what the, what the terrain looks like. Well, this is absolutely, I, I can't argue with the, with a single thing that you just said, I got to tell you. And, and the fact to me that I recently had a discussion with, uh, with another radio host and it was off the air, but we were discussing, you know, exactly how large the problem has become for those of us who are starting to understand that there is a problem. And, uh, you know, the reality was, well, what what is it that can be done now that this this matrix this overlapping and i don't mean just the technological matrix but i mean the entire matrix the you know the psychosocial uh constructs that have been laid over us uh in so by traditional social means by digital means by financial means all of these things which have been constructed over time and overlapped and interlocked uh they are they are a large and uh, uh tremendously formidable uh, construct in you know uh, intermingled with one another all of them and the the fact to me is that if we begin on the bottom in a way and begin to disconnect by uh, alternative means like in other words if you begin to obtain your food just for example if you begin to obtain your food on a local level and you begin to, uh, you know, sort of fund the farmers directly, and you take the larger grocery centers out of the equation a bit, that begins to change the way things will be done. If you take that and begin to, say, barter with your neighbors more, as opposed to utilizing the banks, and you take the banks out of the equation, it changes the landscape. And if you begin this ripple effect from that small center, and there are many, many, many millions of ripple effects. You begin to, un, you know, sort of decouple the lower end of things from that larger construct, I think, in a wider sense. And this is one strategic way that this can begin to happen. So not just sitting there and saying, here's this big, huge, uh, you know, overlapping, overarching thing that has just, you know, enclosed the entire planet. There's nothing that can be done about it because we don't have another planet to go to. You can begin to sort of decouple the smaller things and then stack the effects on top of one another slowly. And I think that would shake the very foundations of what it is that is being constructed. And that, to me, I think is one of the most important messages that any of the alternative media uh, journalists or hosts or bloggers or whatever should get to is that if you begin to resist on these smaller collective levels and you begin to be people as people interacting with one another in a real way 
and you do things in a different fashion, you will change the overall atmosphere and the overall creation of all these things. At least this was my feeling. Do you think that's overly optimistic? No, I, I agree. I think if, if we are to have any effect in actually changing the system as it exists, it can and will only come about through, through things that look like baby steps and that won't be the, I think, the dramatic big confrontation that a lot of people are, are waiting for. But I think that so much of the infrastructure that's been slotted into place by the Department of Homeland Security and all of these other insane governmental institutions out of control are very much geared towards that type of dramatic confrontation that people think is going to happen. I think they're very much prepared for and, in fact, even expecting people to, at some point, break and to spill out onto the streets in riots and protest. And we know from the documents that were released um, by uh, Insider from the the World Bank and, and the IMF in 1999-2000 by uh, Greg Pallast, um, uh, we know that, that basically this is a, a blueprint for economic collapse that has been used in country uh, uh, after country around the world that they really do plan at a certain stage that there, there will be something called that they even call the IMF riot that uh, eventually when things become come to a breaking point and the austerity combined with the the, the lack of purchasing power etc becomes too much for the average person to bear eventually they will spill out onto the streets and they will start rioting and that's and through that the the powers that shouldn't be can even implement more of their agenda because of course that's a convenient crisis for them to use uh, to grab even more kind of emergency powers mm. and uh, and so this is all part of the the plan and unfortunately the IMF riot that uh, has been used around the world is going to come home to roost at a certain point we've already seen that starting to hit the periphery for example the periphery of Europe in recent years as those those types of riots have started uh, in in Europe with the collapse of the the euro system the the slow motion collapse as it continues to take place and it is going to hit home certainly in the United States at some point and i think when that point Point ha- occurs, it's going to be a question of whether people are simply going to try to uh, riot and and uh, march on Washington with pitchforks, or whether they're going to have actual alternatives put in place that they can rely on during those times of crisis. And those alternatives have to be uh, we have to start constructing them now so that they are are there, they are in place, and they do exist, and they are that thing that people can rely on that has nothing to do with the system of control that's been slotted into place around us, that has nothing to do with the Federal Reserve and their 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 notes that they print out of nothing. Um, it, it, it is something that completely bypasses all of that, and I think you're exactly right. That involves... Just trading with trading with your neighbors more, trading trading locally, trading trading online through uh, through cryptocurrencies and and uh, and other ways of of doing it. It doesn't have to be um, just going you know going local and going off the grid. I mean, you can you can find lots of different ways to reach out in different ways um, that that bypass the system that exists. And I think it's it's all of those hundreds and hundreds of different bypasses that we can find, whether it be a, a cryptocurrency or an alternative currency like. Like Colorado Mountain Hours, I had someone on my program to talk about that uh, at one point, or or any anything else, Ithaca Hours. I mean, there's there's different things that exist in pr- pretty much every um, municipality around the United States and across the globe that people can find um, that are that are again just those 
one or two uh, ways that people can find to, to build something alternative to what exists right now. And I think, again, we have to be doing that now because, unfortunately, in the very near future, I think we're going to start seeing some very worrying things developing um, and developing by design, I think. I think we've been engineered into a, a monetary collapse that will likely coincide with some sort of uh, geopolitical events. And we can already see the outlines of that with what's happening with Russia right now. And also the emerging narrative of, uh, of China as being part of that block of resistance to the NATO powers that look like the outlines for a potential World War III scenario. And I think before we get to that point, we have to start detaching ourselves from this system. And it doesn't have to be all at once because that's another thing that people use as their excuse to, to basically stop, um, doing anything about what's going on. They, they, if, if it has to be this overarching system that replaces the system that exists all in one big dramatic blow, then we can just wait for that system to come along rather than doing the hard work of actually sourcing out uh, for example, local trading communities that we can get involved with and things like that at this point in time, even if it is a baby step, I think it's more, more important that we get involved in those baby steps, um, now. So while we have the time to do that, rather than try to look for the, the, the system that will save us once the collapse is already in place. Uh, couldn't have said it any better myself. And, you know, I really do, uh, love the way that, that, uh, you know, you, you put it as participating in those baby steps could be extremely useful. And they're not necessarily baby steps when there are so many pedals, pebbles in the pond. Because if the pond becomes a big, you know, series of ripples, you don't have just that calm, still water that was there before. And that was what I was trying to say. And those ripples do meet and interlock. And you could create entire new systems out of things that appear to be very independent and very simple once they begin to meet. And uh, I think that's that's definitely the way to go. And that was one of the points that I, that I always find myself having trouble making, uh, you know, that some people say, well, you want to do these small things and you want other people to do these small things. Well, what good does that do against the larger machine? And uh, and I think that that is the answer is that once those all those parts, you know, if we need to manufacture a large machine to deal with the large machine, okay, I'll accept that for a moment and tell you that first we need to build the parts. So if we manufacture each of the parts, eventually we'll get enough coherent parts that could be worked together to make another machine, which doesn't necessarily have to be based on these, uh, you know, invented uh, currencies and numbers that are theoretical and really don't exist where they begin trading off this massive amount of debt that is more than, you know, God knows how many times the actual number of, uh, you know, the actual value of the true assets on the planet now that are floating out there being batted around by these uh, financial institutions as they exist now. And, uh, it's it's very very important to think about it like that. So I'm very glad that you had to, that you had that to say. I'll tell well, you. Well, let let me interject there because I think it's important, also philosophically speaking, that we don't fall into the the dialectic trap by which uh, I mean that what we're facing is this overarching system of control that uh, that I'm sure many of your listeners are are familiar with in its various parts and functions. I mean, for example, the Federal Reserve and its control over the mon- monetary supply and and the Department of Homeland Security and the National Security Agency and all of this national security 
state apparatus that's been that's been put into place to monitor and control and and work against the citizenry itself rather right. than the supposed threats from outside, which have always been used to justify its existence. Again, I think people know, understand the broad outlines of this system, but I think it's important not to simply counter the, this big overarching system of control by looking for another alternative overarching system of control that will somehow, you know, be better than the one that, that currently exists. I think we have to fight this ideologically by constructing not a system, not the totalizing uh, system that will somehow replace what's going on, but by but really institutionalizing the exact opposite idea, which is which is freedom, really, which is the idea that uh, that there will not be one single system that everyone has to subscribe to. Um, and, and I think the, the monetary example is, again, a, a perfect example of this. We, we live in a system where there is the legal tender law that makes the, the Federal Reserve notes into basically the not the only currency that exists in, in the country, but certainly the dominant one, because obviously it can be used to uh, to tender any debt and to um and for the payment of uh, taxes so it's uh, it basically by default becomes the 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 dominant system the dominant uh, the piece of paper that everyone needs to to chase all their lives um mm-hmm. why on earth would we replace that system with another system where everybody has to use this one currency that's going to be set up in this one way that will uh, that will be the answer to this why not have a number of competing systems that will that will offer uh, different people different ways of uh, transacting uh, things in different situations so that you can have an online cryptocurrency for your online transactions and you can have uh, a, a local currency um, based on the hour system or the let system or what have you for for local uh, transactions with local businesses you can have something else for for medium range transactions or, or transactions with out of out of town corporations and the like oh. so that um, so that again it's not a system building a totalizing system uh, to, to combat the totalizing system that exists it's using lots of different pieces and having the freedom to move between them because I think the fundamental part that we have to be keeping in mind when we're constructing this alternative is that there has to be the freeway, uh, sorry, the leeway in the system to have the free decision of whether or not to participate in this or that, whether this or that currency or this or that system of, of, of governance, if people want to go, go down that road. And, uh, and so I think it's, I mean, it's at a deeper level than this because again, a lot of people are, are, are still trapped in the mindset that they, what they need is just a different overarching system of control that will somehow be better off for them. Whereas I want to really get people to question that fundamental assumption and look at different ways that they can construct a system that is not based on a system, a system that is um, really based on on freedom and the, the free exchange of, uh, of ideas and the freedom to participate or not participate in any given part or, or part or facet of that system. Right. And that in that way, you could uh, instead of having a monolithic system, I, I, I must I just didn't really state that very well, but I've got to say, instead of being a monolithic system, it doesn't even necessarily have to be a, a series of competing systems, but it could be a series of systems that are able to cooperate. Uh, even the smallest one could cooperate with another one and another one and another one. And these things could be intermingled a bit without having to be monolithic and controlled by these larger entities as they are now. Uh, there are various ways to, uh, to organize this, uh, to not organize it even, and to, uh, to have these things just be functional with one another so that they're not completely, uh, incoherent, uh, as, as systems go. But it doesn't have to be based on this, uh, this 
as you said, the, the Federal Reserve note uh, being the primary sort of thing that uh, that uh, so many people have to chase in a particular area in order to, uh, you know, perpetuate their lifespan. Uh, that's that's a very, very key issue. I'm very glad that you uh, that you brought that, you know, clarified that for me. I appreciate that. Um, you know, I've got to say that you, you cover a great deal of things, a great many things on your uh, on your site. And like I said, not only just news and historical events, but uh, but just simple philosophical discussions and more complex philosophical discussions uh, where you you have uh, aired the sides of many uh, coins, I would say, <laughs> in a way, you know what I mean? And uh, I have always appreciated uh, your work for that reason. Uh, like when you were discussing the alternatives to the monetary system and you started talking about instead of the debt-based currency, the credit-based currencies uh, that were a possibility and the ideas that silver and gold, although they are, uh, you know, among the many solutions that could be had for exchange, they are not uh, the end-all and be-all of solutions. There are many, many different ways to approach this uh, issue. And uh, I really have always appreciated the way that you've done that. Um, and, you know, well, let me just say thank you for that, because it, it, it really does seem a, a, an uphill battle at times um, trying to combat that mentality that a lot of people have, that they're they're really all just looking for the next kind of savior, whether that savior be, you know, gold and silver or whether that savior be a political candidate or what have you. I think I'm always trying to fight back against that tendency um, to try to show people that there are lots of different ways of looking at this or that issue. There are lots of different things to, to consider. And uh, for example, I mean, with that that example that you just cited there um i i know there's a lot of gold bugs out there that will tell you well gold is the only only way to organize a, an economic system and uh and i i think it's just uh, a lot of people just don't have the 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 capacity for nuance in their thinking and and separating out different uh different different uses for different things in different contexts and different times that give rise to different uh, uh, variable ways that th things can be d developed. So that, for example, I mean, with gold and silver, they, they are great sto stores of value and historically have been, but to base an entire economy on the vagaries of what you can mine out of the ground seems to me insane in a lot of ways um, and doesn't, doesn't really reflect uh, the reality of a, a population that, that, can go up and down and, uh, and not necessarily in proportion to the amount of gold and silver that are being mined out of the ground. And so I think we have to, we have to think about things in a more nuanced way. And so that's what I'm always attempting to do. So, uh, feedback like that, um, really does, uh, encourage me. Well, you know, the, the problem is that, uh, individuals always have what is literally prejudice and it is to prejudge. You have sort of preconceived notions about things which are based on various bits of input that you've received over the years as a, as an individual. And sometimes, uh, I, I also, uh, have to struggle with getting over those things and saying to them, listen, you know, I understand that you have this, this belief that this is this. Okay. That's all there is to it for you. But if you can sort of step back from that for a moment and imagine that that's not necessarily the singular one answer. Uh, you may find that there are other answers that will work just as well. And that is always a difficult thing when you're trying to convince someone to simply give the information that, that you've uh, taken the time to cultivate for them 
uh, even it's sort of mental day in court for them. You know what I mean? And, uh, that, that is a troublesome thing sometimes and, and is part of the major struggle when it comes to sort of disseminating information, which is not necessarily, uh, part of that, you know, collective understanding, part of the, acceptable zeitgeist, if you will, that uh, that is often uh, propagated by many of the major media outlets. And uh, this is this is really what it all comes down to in, in my mind is getting people to step away from their preconceived notions. And uh, sometimes people are prepared to do so. And sometimes you have to give them a little help. And there's even situations where you cannot help them. And I've got to say that there was uh, one individual, and I can't remember who it was, but very early on when I was starting to explore uh, utilizing, uh, you know, the Internet, the web to try and disseminate information for people, uh, I ran into someone who said, you know, uh, there's a lot of people that are in search of a savior. And this had to do not with necessarily religious connotations, but just with information in general. They're in search of a savior. They're in search of a singular voice. They're in search of sort of the, uh, you know, big daddy figure to give them all the information. And sometimes you need to explain to them that their actual saviors, their real world saviors, uh, for themselves, if they're going to insist on having one is, is, uh, much easier to find if they look in a mirror and they utilize themselves to become their own saviors. And well, that's always been a key and integral part of my message and something that I've always tried to stress, um, in, in all of the work that I do because I, 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 to the extent that people look at, at me as just a replacement for the authority figures that have lied to them all their lives, I think that that's a, that's a sign of failure on my part because what I'm attempting to do is to get people to realize that the, the system of, of authority figures telling people what to think, believe, and how to act, etc., is itself the problem. It's not that you need a better authority figure. It's that uh, relying on those authority figures is the problem because that obfuscates um, and and basically disconnects people from from the hard work. It certainly is hard work, but the necessary work of thinking for themselves. So I attempt, I think, I hope to present evidence and uh, about whatever topic it is that I'm presenting on, and and uh, and obviously I try to cite my sources and and back it up with information that people can go and verify for themselves. But it's always been an integral part of the the mission of the Corbett Report that people do verify it for themselves, um, because again, otherwise people are just taking my word for it. So, unfortunately, as um, as a media producer, I do get a lot of feedback that does involve people as saying, for example, I uh, I, I always get people asking me, "What do you think about this um, this particular researcher? What do you think about this particular news source?" And uh, it always strikes me as a failure on my part when I get that type of feedback, because again. If you can't make that decision for yourself, or you don't want to make that decision for yourself, then then what really have you gained from from this media that you're that you're listening to? It, it, it's it's designed to be as thought provoking and hopefully to design to provoke people into actually searching for information themselves. So to the extent that that happens, I think that uh, that what I'm doing is a success. And to the extent that people come to and uh, to basically expect some other talking head um, on the screen. I mean, people don't know me. They only know the, the work that I produce. If they're looking to me to, to try to solve their problems for them, then then I would say that what I've done is a failure. And uh, in that context, I got to say also that uh, your, your 
presentation, uh, I think it was in France not long ago on open source media, uh, is a good place to look to understand uh, what the methodology is that you uh, have utilized anyway to uh, to gather this information and to understand what the concept is and why it's so important that open source media uh, is is constructed uh, much in the way I'm not saying that you're the only guy who does this well, but you are a, a prime example of it. Uh, and I, I was really uh, taken aback, actually, by the uh, by that presentation you did there as well. So, well, thank you very much for that. I, I appreciate that. For people who are interested, it's it's called open source journalism, and it's there on my on my website. Um, and uh, that I mean, it's it's good to hear that that it was an effective presentation because, in some ways, that's basically the presentation I've been preparing for since the uh, the website began, because it was something that I want uh, I specifically wanted from the very moment of the inception of the website was uh, was it was extremely important to me that there would be a list of documentation citing all of the sources for everything that I was talking about in every podcast interview whatever what have you it was always integral to me that uh, that I cite the sources and have it there right there um, ready to click on and it and it I mean it's such a basic idea it's such an absolutely basic idea that it kind of boggled my mind at that time that there were so few podcasts so few um, internet based sources that were actually really doing that in a thoroughgoing manner in the alternative media. And uh, and certainly when you looked at the mainstream media, I mean, just even a few years ago, if you looked at your average New York Times or, or Washington Times or, or Post, Washington Post or whatever article it might be, there would generally be zero hyperlinks of any sort. They've since started hyperlinking sources here and there, occasionally a smattering. But it, it, it it's always boggled my mind that here we are in this incredible worldwide web of literally i mean the repository of human na- human uh, the 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 sum of human knowledge at, at our fingertips and so little of that um is really being utilized i think to the extent that it could be and it's a pretty simple idea again just to cite your sources and to uh and to put the uh put the information out there for for free freely available is another extremely important part of this that i think is part of the power that we have now to step around the 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 gatekeepers of information that have existed in human society for centuries and centuries and centuries, perhaps for the entirety of human civilization. We really do have a way to reach directly to people all around the globe, nearly instantaneously and not f- not completely for free, but certainly for, for very little cost for the average kind of person in the, uh, in the developed industrial world at any rate, which is, again, it's an exciting time to be alive in a lot of respects. And I just hope that people understand that, grasp it, and use it, utilize it to its full. And I don't claim to be, you know, the, 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 the best authority on this, but I, it's something that I've definitely been thinking about since the inception of the website and has really been important to me as part of what I'm doing um, so that people, again, can take this information and actually use it and actually interact with it and start thinking about it and, and wrestling with it for themselves rather than just listening to some so-called authority pronouncing on things from on high. Precisely. And, uh, you know, the end result, um, just, just as an aside to the people that uh, are enjoying listening to my show, I mean, my show is pretty new and it's only a radio show, but I am trying to present the best information that I can and bring you people that you can look at on the internet and check out and understand where it is they're coming from, what their information is about. And quite honestly, as, uh, as I say all the time in my posts and things like this, you know, come on and be the media, 
the reason for that, the inspiration for that was uh, partially from you because uh, the, 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 the actual reason why this radio show exists it was partially your encouragement, not necessarily directly, but just the overall message of, you know, create for yourself the information that you want to present out there. Don't just rely on someone else to do it. This was the kind of thing that uh, that I wanted to find a vehicle to begin to present, uh, you know, my understanding of you know, whether it be historical events or the current events or, you know, uh, things relating directly to the human condition, whatever they may be, if I am not out there actively participating and trying to uh, at least add my voice to the giant chorus of humanity, which is now interacting on this uh, this worldwide scale, then I by no means have any right to complain you know, this is a personal thing for me, but I have no right to complain about the fact that my viewpoint is not represented if I am not attempting to represent it. And the only way to do so would be to come out and bring a presentation that uh, features the best of what it is I can find. And it may not be the uh, greatest of all time radio shows or the most enlightening things in the world, but if I present one idea that causes one person to uh, to act, to change things in the smallest way, again, the ripple effect is possible. And this is why I named the radio show the way it is and why it is I am always saying, be the media. Um, also in that vein, if anybody wants to join in on the conversation, if you don't mind, James, uh, if anyone wants to join in, we can take calls at 718-717-8296 if anyone wants to join in. Um, and I'll take calls. Uh, James may not re- remain with me much longer here, but uh, I'll take calls afterwards as well. So, you know, you also out there listening to us can join in and be the media, even if it's only for five minutes. You can do it, too. And uh, I, I encourage anyone who has a point of view to try to find a vehicle, whether it be a blog or a website or, you know, and don't be intimidated by the uh you know, massive amount of work that, say, someone like James puts out there, your contribution could be the most important thing to someone somewhere, and you never know what it is you could start by bringing them the correct information, bringing them the real viewpoint, bringing them a different uh, way to look at things or a different uh, way to examine things than they may have considered in the past. So I think that the participation uh aspect that you have always encouraged uh, among your listeners, readers, etc., is uh, is key. And I hope that uh, that the Ocelli effect will do that as well on some level. And uh, perhaps you never know who it is you may influence. So always keep that in mind as well. Well, I, I can't tell you how happy I am to hear that that feedback. It's always the best feedback I can possibly hear that I've played a part, no matter how small, in prompting people towards doing this. Because, again, that really is the, the raison d'etre for the Corbett Report and exactly what I'm attempting to do. So I, I do appreciate that. And I also want to stress that it's not necessarily that I think everyone needs to start a blog or start a podcast or what have you. I think it can be... Just even tiny things like the uh, the conversations that you have with people in your daily life, it could be uh, emails that you send to your friends or family or what have you, um, can be part of that ripple effect as well. It's simply 
making this information a part of your life and a part of who you are and a part of how you interact with the world is, I think, the the fundamental part of this. And I, again, this is something that everyone can do every single day in simply the choices of what you choose to to spend your time on, what you choose to spend your money on, what you choose to spend your time interacting with or or talking about or, or focusing on really can make that change um, in society in the, in the bigger scheme of things. And uh, and when, once people start to realize that, once they really internalize that the power ultimately does really lie with the people, then we can actually start to use that power, I think, for for uh, changing this uh, this world for the better. Well, I got to tell you one other thing, too, James. I have been dying to ask you about something uh, for a while now. The third, I believe it was the third anniversary now of the Fukushima event occurred. And the fact that we were quite enthralled on not only the mainstream level, but in the alternative media with this uh, Malaysian air situation at that time, and the fact that there wasn't very much focus uh, to my knowledge anyway, uh, on, on that situation and the fact that you are there in Japan. I mean, I, I would find it extremely valuable to know what your viewpoint is on that situation in general or these current state of affairs or anything regarding this. Well, you are right. We just did pass the three, three year anniversary of the tsunami that triggered the, the Fukushima event on March 11th, 2011. So we, we did just see that marker come and go. And unlike the first and second anniversaries, there was a lot less coverage, even in the alternative media of this one. I think, as you say, there's, there's just other things that have distracted a lot of people. Um, and, uh, unfortunately, uh, things do not seem to be getting any better from the perspective or the viewpoint of, uh, uh, for the people here in Japan fighting against the restarts of the nuclear reactors. Um, for people who don't know, basically over the past three years, um, uh, the, the entirety of the, the nuclear reactors on, on the, uh, on, in Japan, all 51 of them, 52 of them, um, have been shut down and for maintenance of one sort or another and not turned back on as Japan kind of figures out a new regulatory regime and, and safety inspection standards and et cetera, um, that will, need to be in place before they they restart these reactors. So Japan is at the moment nuclear free um in terms of nuclear energy. Uh however, the 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 Abe administration that was voted in last December is now uh basically basing their new energy policy on the idea that nuclear power will continue to be the central plank of Japan's energy uh plan for the the coming decades. Um a 180 degree turn from the last administration by the way which um, had uh, proposed the idea of being nuclear-free in Japan by 2050, which mm-hmm. uh, was an ambitious idea, but certainly it was uh, good to see a, a, a government panel uh, actually recommending that and the government tentatively accepting that until the uh, the administration was voted out. So, um, so that fight still continues, and unfortunately, I think there's a sense of political, perhaps political uh, uh, futility setting in here amongst uh, some of the anti-nuclear campaigners, whereas we saw literally tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, depending on who you want to believe on in for the number counts, um, turning out in the streets of Tokyo last summer and the summer before to protest uh, the the government and its uh, its actions or lack thereof on the Fukushima situation in particular and the nuclear situation in general, um, that has dwindled considerably so that, for example, there was a, a, to- a rally in Tokyo um, just the other day uh, to try to uh, to 
push home that message that the Japanese people do not want nuclear power of any sort that only managed to draw about 5,000 people. So, um, so considerably down from where it was at the height of uh, the protest movement here. And perhaps that's a sign that a lot of people just don't expect that the Abe government is going to be uh, responsive to these types of protests. So again, it is an uphill battle. And of course, with the situation at the site itself, um, continuing um, water leakage on a daily basis uh, into the ocean and continuing accumulation of radioactive water from the water that they're pumping through in the, the reactors one, two, and three um, that have melted down and are in some various uh, states of, uh, of, of composition in, at the bottom of the reactors, eating their way through the concrete um, in, in states that we can't even determine because no one can actually get close enough to, to take any sort of terrain, a survey of the terrain. Uh, it's it's still a very very dire situation in a lot of respects, and uh, unfortunately that hasn't really been improved. And there's still really no prospect that this is going to be anything that can be put under control anytime in the near or foreseeable future. As even the Japanese government has admitted that the the technology needed to actually um, get these these reactors stable and under control and get their their core uh, materials removed doesn't even exist yet. So, uh, so again, it's, it's very much an uphill battle on a number of fronts. Not a lot of encouraging information coming out at all. And, uh, and unfortunately, it's even starting to slip off of the, uh, the, the alternative media radar to a large extent. So I have FukushimaUpdate.com. That's my website devoted specifically to Fukushima to hopefully counteract that and hopefully keep people up to date about what's happening so people can go there and uh, and take a look at the information both about the latest news of the day and also quite a, a, a large repository of information throughout the uh, the the duration of the crisis uh, historical information that people can go back to now right and uh, you know i i just you know and i also wonder on a personal level i mean uh, how disconcerting do you find this personally being that you're in japan well, I mean, it's obviously it's it's a cause of concern, and there are uh, there are things that myself and my family do to try to mitigate those concerns, including um, the way that we source our food. We use a, a cooperative um, here that that uses only organic uh, ingredients and also does radiation testing of all of their products that uh, they make available to to the public. So we do that. Uh, we avoid seafood at this point unless we know where it's coming from and it's coming from the other side of the planet. Um, and, and, and things like that, things of that nature that we're doing on, on the personal level. Um, for the people in the Fukushima region itself, um, it's a, a, I mean, the disaster is just almost unthinkable. There are still people, still people, still refugees from that crisis who are still living um, in gymnasiums, sleeping on floors um, that have no real realistic process pro- prospect of returning to their homes anytime in the foreseeable future and no desire to do so, even if that opportunity did present itself. Um, there are still uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people whose lives have been I- I- irrevocably changed by this. So I think th- there has to be a, 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 those people have to be kept in mind, uh, first and foremost in this disaster. And unfortunately, uh, the Tokyo Electric Power Company that owns and operates the Fukushima plant and the Japanese government aren't really making it any easier on any of these people. And uh, even though lots of uh, different things, money, etc., have been promised to these people, it has been a constant fight to even attempt to get uh, to get those things that have already been promised. So, uh, so again, I think a lot more attention needs to be paid to that, um, specifically in the Fukushima region and, and the people who have been directly affected most uh, most obviously by this accident. 
All right. Well, I've added uh, Jim Funky, who is a uh, host on the UCY network, also a Boiler Room Radio, one of my favorite shows, uh, to the conversation. You there, Jim? Yes, sir, I am. All right. I think Jim has a question for James. Uh, good evening, James Corbett. It's nice to speak with you, sir. I watch your Boiling Frogs post and uh, a lot of the other things you do on YouTube all the time. I have one question for you. The videos that came out from TEPCO that showed the inside of the reactor well, when they were going to start transferring the fuel rods and the, you saw all this brand new equipment and all this bright green paint. Do you believe that for one second, that that's the inside of one of those reactors in Fukushima Prefecture? Well, I, I think you're right to be uh, quizzical about that because, again, I think for anyone who looks at that and then understands what actually took place at the plant and tries to reconcile those two things, uh, I mean, it does stretch the bonds of credulity. And we do know that, I mean, I mean, they even admit that they do manipulate the images because uh, to protect, you know, the, the trade secrets and, and things about nuclear power plants that the public mm. isn't allowed to know. So we do, I mean, they have admitted that they do manipulate these images um, to what extent uh, and to what extent this is all a production that's put on for show. I can't say with any definitive, um, uh, you know, evidence, but I certainly do have much my suspicions about how much of that really is real uh, at all. And I think you're right, again, to, to look at the, the, these pristine-looking images of these pristine inside of the reactor, when we know that, of course, the, the entire site, and, of course, the reactor 4 in particular, was ex- exceptionally damaged by the explosions that took place there. So um, so it is, uh, yeah, I, I must admit, I, I certainly reserve my, my, uh, my credulity on that, that issue in particular. I had I had an issue with that as well because to my mind and perhaps I'm you know being a bit uh, foolish about it but the thing is you know if you have that level of radiation being pumped at uh, what is ostensibly a, a digital or uh, you know a camera which has all this hardware but there's no interference in those images. Uh, to show the reaction of radiation. And I know for sure that anytime they've tried to film uh, things that were realistically pumping out that level of, uh, of whatever, uh, you know, that there's always interference in the images. And those images were extremely clean, uh, you know, to my eye anyway. And, of course, my eyes aren't the most trustworthy, but I saw no interference there uh, with the uh, with the equipment even. And uh, you would have thought that if you were dealing with a radioactive situation like that, I mean, even the old film cameras that were, you know, more mechanical in nature uh, had difficulty maintaining themselves during the uh, photographic, uh, you know, episodes of other radiological events. So isn't that kind of strange as well, guys? Well, no, that's a good point. And, uh, and again, people can compare those images that, that we're talking about to the images, for example, that they were taking of the insides of the, the reactor buildings, um, uh, uh, throughout the crisis and, and, uh, specifically a couple of years ago, I'm thinking of some of the images that I saw that, that have exactly those hallmarks that you're talking about, the, the streaks and flecks and, uh, and various things that go on because, again, the radiation is interfering with the, 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 the mechanics of the, the camera systems. So I think you're, you're right. Again, it's just another reason to be highly skeptical about what we're seeing and what we're being allowed to see about what's going on in, in those buildings. I have, I have one last question, and then I'll let Chuck have his show back. <laughs> what, what would it take to make you get off that island, get your family and get off that island? 
I suppose it would take uh, something beyond what is currently taking place at the moment. Um, that is to say that although what is happening right now obviously is a concern, it is a concern in certain identifiable ways. The radiation right now is specifically a concern, obviously, at the site um, and the, the radioactive water that's accumulating in the storage tanks and the, the structural integrity of those storage tanks are obviously big concerns. Also, what is we know is being pumped out into the uh, into the ocean on a daily basis. But to a certain extent, all of those are known quantities. I think it would take something something different um for example the confirmation that the corium had had breached the the, uh, the concrete um in the in the in the building itself or and or uh collapse of the spent fuel pool or something of that sort that would that would change the 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 status um at that point but with something like that with the collapse of the spent fuel pool or something of that nature again that would be something that you probably want to consider evacuating the northern hemisphere so i'm not sure if, if you know returning to canada at that point would be would even be helpful so uh so I, I mean obviously i'm i'm watching what's happening at the site but just at this current point i think that the status quo is not something that is going to prompt me to leave uh, japan and you've got to be watching it closely because of your proximity for sure i mean uh you know as as we discussed at one point i mean you do have a family also it's not just yourself and uh, but like you said, I mean, certain disastrous situations that would occur, it would just, it would be almost futile to attempt to flee uh, if, if certain things went on, huh? Yes, again, it depends how it happens. It depends what's happening. Again, radiation isn't a magic thing that magically teleports. I mean, there, it, it goes in certain, it, it, it transports through various mechanisms that, that again can be identified and can be measured. And so I, I mean, uh, things like I'm always telling people to go to something like safecast.org, which again is a network of independently run, uh, Geiger counters and, and radiation monitors that are throughout Japan and in fact throughout the world, um, that are being, again, independently maintained and, and correlated in, in real time to give radiation hotspot measurements and, and basically show people what the radiation readings are in various places. You can go there and take a look at any given time, not only in Japan, but in the United States. And it, it's interesting to me because, um, there are, there are areas of the United States that, that certainly have higher levels of radioactivity readings right now than the area of Japan where I'm in. And people tend to think, oh, Japan is just a tiny little island. Um, but, Basically, on the bigger scheme of things, again, it's it's actually bigger than you might expect. And every time there's a, a earthquake in Hokkaido, for example, I'll get f- phone calls from concerned family and friends back in Canada that don't understand just how big Japan is. And no, we didn't feel that at all. So again, we have to understand that there are things going on that are um, that are beyond this. And it also worries me that people are concentrating on Fukushima to the exclusion of things that are happening in their own backyard, so that. Some of the, the very serious nuclear concerns that are taking place, for example, in the United States get overlooked and blamed on Fukushima as kind of a, I think, a way that the, the nuclear industry in the United States can help obfuscate some of the sins that are going on in that industry in, in, in America's own backyard. And some of the, I think, more direct threats to a lot of people in the United States comes from local sources rather than what's happening in Fukushima. So I think there's a a sort of a meta level on which we have to be concerned about not just what's happening in this one locality, but, but the issue in general, which again, it, it, uh, it should be noted that the, the exact type of reactor that was used 
uh, in Fukushima, the, the GE Mark One, is something that's actually quite common in the United States. I believe there are, there are over 20, I think, I think it's 21 or 22 of those reactors in the United States currently operating today, privy to the exact same types of problems that could, uh, that, that, that affected the Fukushima plant. Right. Right. And that, that is a good point also that, uh, the, you know, the relative, uh, you know, distance that Fukushima has from us, you know, and it being utilized sort of as an excuse to exclude the idea that, uh, local sources of radioactivity could be raising levels here is, is really, uh, something that I do think is often not, not really looked at by, uh, by a lot of us, uh, both in the mainstream and the alternative media. We, we don't, uh, we don't generally focus on a lot of this stuff because we are very much, uh, distracted by the idea that Fukushima is kind of bleeding out to the entire world, uh, which it is, but it is not. Uh, so is Hanford. Yeah, exactly. And so yes, is Hanford. Yes. And so is, yeah. uh, you know, the, the problems that are all up and down the East Coast, in fact, of the United States. Uh, you know, I just moved from an area where there were, you know, constantly, uh, test alarms and, you know, one of those areas where they actually handed us the pills and everything else, uh, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, sometimes I think that uh, it is kind of a, a point of distraction for some people to not look at their own, uh, in their own backyards, as you say. So I think that's, that's, an, that's a very important thing to bring up and that uh, people should be more aware of what's close to home as well. Uh, and and just as one specific example of that phenomenon, I I was tracking a story in uh in my home and native land of Canada back uh, a couple of years ago when the Toronto Star revealed that there was actually a GE Hitachi uranium pellet plant uh, that processed uranium uh in down in not downtown in uh, the suburbs of Toronto that there were residents of the community that had no idea what the plant was. They just saw it every day. They had no idea that it was doing this type of work or the types of risks that uh, that a plant like that posed in terms of radiation exposure. And uh, it, this was revealed a couple of years ago by a report. Oh, yeah, that, that plant that's been there for, for decades and decades, yeah, it's processing uranium pellets for GE Itachi. Um, and this caused a lot of furor, and a lot of people were suddenly concerned about the issue, and uh, the uh, Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission eventually did release a, a report taking a look at the uh, the safety precautions that go on there and deeming it to be a safe working environment or what have you. But uh, but again, it's just a, another example of that phenomenon that people tend to think of this nuclear threat as something that, oh, well, it's it's at Fukushima, it's there, and anything that happens there uh, it, it radiologically must be from Fukushima, whereas they literally don't know what's happening in their own backyard. So, uh, so that's, I mean, it's something that we have to be thinking about, um, I think, more broadly. And obviously for, for people here in Japan, I mean, there's 50 other nuclear power plants to worry about now that are gradually going to start coming online if uh, if the Japanese government has its way. So I think this is what the, what the real fight is at this point and uh, something that we all have to be concerned about. It's also worthwhile to remember that we are still content contending, excuse me, with the uh, with the background radiation being raised uh, in, in the hemisphere uh, by the Chernobyl accident. That is still a factor, uh, though quite widely forgotten by uh, by many i would say and uh you know all of these things in fact and the entire nuclear landscape is something that needs to be 
uh, better understood. So right. that and don't forget decades of open air nuclear testing that also left an identifiable and to this day identifiable trace of radioactive elements in the ocean, for example. Um, so now, I'm, for example, when they're looking for the trace of the Fukushima signature, there are, they have to extract the trace of the open air testing that uh, contributed to some of the radiological elements that are identifiable in the ocean. So, um, so again, it, I mean, people's understanding of this pro- probably isn't where it should be. And that might be rife topic for a future report of mine. What about Precisely. all the depleted uranium laying on the sand over in Iraq? Yes, absolutely. Uh, another ball. terrible situation that's led to literally the, the worst um, incidents of, uh, of birth defects in certain areas, including Fallujah and other places Horrible. that have ever been detected um, and ever identified. And they want you to believe that that is coincidental. But of course, I think uh, we, we probably we do know, know better that. than that. Um, but I, yes, I have one uh, question out of the room for you, James. Oh yeah, James. Uh, Jim is looking at the uh, chat room, so he he has a question from the chat room for you. Okay, that, but I think uh, we'll have to make this the last one before I go. But no problem. Yes. Okay, okay. Uh, this is from uh, one of our other hosts, Michael from Primer Time Radio. He asks if uh, Stuxnet was on the Siemens control units at Fukushima. Do you know anything about that? I I don't know that specifically. I can't say that that was the case. I have heard that alluded to. Um, I have no confirmation of that. If anyone has any specific evidence of that i'm certainly interested to hear about it because obviously that would be a huge piece of the puzzle Um, but i don't have any specific evidence of that that's not to say it's not out there i just don't know of it i appreciate the opportunity to talk to you sir and take care of yourself and your family well thank you very much i do appreciate it have a good evening all right thanks a lot jim yep so james i i realize that you want to get to get to wrapping up here um, you know, and I, I think we've covered a, a pretty wide span of uh, interesting information and uh, given people a really good feel of the type of uh, reporting that you do and uh, what it is you're all about in general as far as, you know, uh, your methodology, uh, your philosophical uh, uh, approach to the information that it is that you're putting out. And uh, I've also... Uh, you know, alluded to some of those things specifically tonight, but there is a plethora of stuff at, uh, at your website, uh, your main website, which is CorbettReport.com, one word, right? And, uh, also you had uh, the Fukushima site there. What, what was that again? FukushimaUpdate.com. But again, people can just go to CorbettReport.com and the links are there to all of my other Various tentacles at the International Forecaster, at Boiling Frogs Post, Global Research, um, my collaboration with Media Monarchy on New World next week. There's a lot of different uh, things that I have. So CorbettReport.com is the one-stop shop that uh, that people should go to, and uh, they can find links to everything else from there. And you can even find a couple of appearances by me on there uh, just discussing the Lee Harvey Oswald topic <laughs> uh, on uh, James's Corbett Report Radio. Uh, I think the first one was in 2011, something like that. And, uh, you know, so I, uh, I encourage everybody to uh, and everybody who is interested in a source which is uh, quite standalone in a lot of ways and very, very much outside of the uh, mainstream and yet, uh, you know, not one of these guys who is just running around with a tinfoil hat on as they like to tell us that most of us are <laughs> and, uh, really a responsible, solid and well thought out, uh, journalist in general who, uh, has created a great, great many Many, I mean, I just don't even know the number of presentations that you've done, podcasts, interviews, 
videos, short documentaries, reports for Boiling Frogs, as we uh, brought up, global uh, global research, uh, TV, uh, you know, the New World Next Week, all of this stuff. Uh, like he said, you can find it all at CorbettReport.com. So is there anything else you'd like to add, James, tonight? I think that's it for me for tonight, but I just want to thank you for having me on. And once again, congratulations on the new program. I'm very much looking forward to uh, to hearing what you produce. All right. And I appreciate your time, James. Thank you so much for coming on with me tonight. All right. Take care. Take care.